0: Well, we got some developments this week in this uh, foreign interference story. we got some terms of reference for this special rapporteur. We've got the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, who now will testify before committee. But we've got some big, big issues here we got to tackle as a country. And I don't know if we've yet gotten to the heart of the matter. But someone who's been following this story for years is uh, author, journalist, columnist Terry Glavin. You can read more at his Substack as well, The therealstory.substack.com. And let's get to the real story on this here. Terry, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Welcome to The Program.
1: Oh, it's nice talking to you, Rob.
0: Yeah, I mean, the story just seems to have blown up in the last few weeks, but this has been going on for years. Are, are we finally getting closer to the heart of the matter here as you see it?
1: Well, every time we do get, we seem to get close to it. Uh, the Trudeau government has a very, is very skillful in the art of changing the subject and burying the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what's really going on, is that, uh, you know, for the last two weeks, we've all been having an argument about whether or not uh, David Johnston is the respectable gentleman that, uh, you know, we all should understand him to be, and whether or not we're bowing and scraping properly, whether we're tugging our forelocks in the right manner and doffing our caps properly. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of a joke. And there's been all of this resistance at the committee level to a public inquiry into what happened in 2019 and 2021 in the federal elections. And the NDP has made this motion so broad as to, you know, cover Peter Julian's uh, pet project of uh, investigating something he read in the National Observer about the Kremlin being behind the truckers protest or something. Uh, which is by the way, the only specific allegation that 's come up at committee that CSIS has directly refuted mm-hmm. um, so yeah it's 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 uh it's it 's kind of crazy, you know, like I try to keep my eyes on the forests now rather than the trees, and uh because i 've been cutting down these trees for years, and um I think it would be really useful for Canadians to kind of sit back and stand back from this and try not to be a conservative or a liberal and just say, what in God's name is going on here? Right. (laughs) And it's not good.
0: It's no, you're happened. right. I mean, you know, what's interesting, too, and you mentioned David Johnston, and, and understandably, there's been a lot of focus on his friendship with Justin Trudeau and, and that, that conflict there. But I think there's another interesting element here that you've touched on is that, you know, he seems to represent where we have this political class almost in, in Canada yeah. that have been deferent, you know, shown deference yeah. to, toward Beijing, tried to, to foster better relationships with Beijing. How much does this factor into this bigger story here?
1: Oh, it's, it's huge. There's a real tendency in this country, particularly in the Laurentian classes, if I can put it that way, uh, to um, one must not say anything untoward about one's betters. And it's all a very small crowd, you know? Like, like yeah, Johnston is, you know, Johnston's family is a very close family friend, uh, very close to the Trudeau family, going back three generations now. You know, their kids went skiing together. They shared, you know, they were adjacent cottages in the Laurentians. Um, the thing about Johnston that concerns me the most is, uh, well, I mean, if that wasn't bad enough, is uh, the fact that if you really wanted to do an investigation into Chinese influence operations in Canada, you would be, invest- David Johnson would, be have- would have to start investigating his own friends. And he would buy. You know, we're all focused on the Trudeau Foundation, which I think is worthwhile, because CSIS has disclosed that Trudeau was a willing subject of a Chinese influence operation going back to 2013, Mm -hmm. and part of that influence operation involved the donation of a million dollars to the Trudeau Foundation and to McGill University in Trudeau Trudeau's father's name and a statue of Trudeau's father and Mao Zedong. (laughs) Um, So, you know, that would be bad enough because he's a Trudeau Foundation guy. But you just have to look at his own foundation, the Rideau Hall Foundation. Look at the characters that are on that foundation. You've got Dominic Barton to start with, who, you know, he used to be on an advisory committee overseeing – the committee, the committee of the Politburo of China, that oversees its state-owned enterprises, which are the overseas acquisitions arms of the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, I, you don't want to get me to get me going about Dominic Barton, but I mean, he has spent years in China, mm-hmm. you know, greasing palms. Uh, working with Chinese state-owned enterprises with institutions that were building building military, militarized islands in the South China Sea. He is central to this. And then you've got, you know, uh, people like Peter Harder, who was the chairman of the Canada-China Business Council, who Trudeau put in charge of his transition team and then gave him the top seat in the Senate, also on the uh, on uh, the Rideau Hall Foundation board is uh, Bev McLaughlin, who's disgraced herself, a uh, former Canadian judge who's still serving on the High Court in Hong Kong. Um, I mean, he, there, it's, it's a, you know, and, and one of the directors emeriti of the Rideau Hall Foundation is Paul the third, who, you know, and it's the Demaray family in Montreal. They, they founded the Canada China Business Council. It's FNC-Lavalin, it's Bombardier, it's Sinopec, it's CNOC, it's the whole crew of them. So, I mean, he's right in the middle of all of this. So, you know, I think this is the deal, is that you have to understand election interference operations in the context of a broader influence operation that the Chinese government has been running very, very successfully in Canada for years, And the difficulty, imagine what I always like to say, imagine if you're in CESIS and you're a high-level guy and your job is to look at the bigger picture. And what you find is that the United Front Work Department, which, by the way, has a budget uh, far in excess of the entire Chinese foreign ministry, Uh, at the broader macro level, it's hard to distinguish United Front Work Department influence operations from from federal government projects and policy, and when you're at the granular level, uh, and you're surveilling the United Front Work Department agents in the hierarchy of the Mandarin Block uh, in the GTA or Metro Vancouver, you know you find that the the, the you know you're looking at fundraising, uh, activism, candidates, uh, nomination meetings. The, the, the United Front Work Department agents that you're surveilling are the same people as the Liberal Party is fielding as candidates. So what do you do if you're a CESIS guy, right?
2: Yeah.
1: It's like, my God, do I open a file on uh, this cabinet minister whose campaign co-chair is totally mobbed up? Uh, you know, it's, it's really, it's way deeper than people, I think, fully appreciate And that's, I think, what uh, Trudeau is trying to change the subject from. Let's talk more about
0: what China is up to here, right? And and we see evidence where they're targeting critics, be it in politics, uh, the broader diaspora community, etc. They're they're trying to foster friendships and allies or support those who are are sympathetic to China. So we we see evidence of that. What's the broader strategy here? What is it that China is up to? What do we need to recognize about what China is up to?
1: Well, what China's up to in Canada is the same as what China is up to in everything from, you know, the little countries in Melanesia to Australia and Britain and so on. Canada, the project in Canada is of particular importance to the, to, to Beijing because it's the North American economy, my God. Uh, and, you know, Canada is part of a Canada-US free trade agreement. Uh, and if they can sneak in the back door into Canada, there's any number of uh, of damages that they might be able to do, the, the, the strategy, the, the big picture strategy in Canada has been to kind of drive a wedge between Canada and the United States. Its broader geopolitical strategy is to create this new world, this Belt and Road world that's dominated by Xi Jinping with his allies in Moscow and in Tehran and in Caracas and in all, you know, a handful of dictatorships around the world. Um, that's, you know, what, what China is up to in Canada. The, and, and you have to see, I think it's really important to see the whole kidnapping of the two Mikes and Meng Wanzhou as a really significant event in that strategy, because what they were trying to do and what their compradors, if you like, what their agents of influence and their friends in the corporate class in Canada were doing at that time was saying, okay, screw it, this is happening. We need to just, uh, you know, break with the Americans, to hell with the extradition treaty, give Beijing what Beijing wants. Uh, You know, we can dress it up as a mercy mission of trying to get the mics back home. And we have seriously severed uh, a, a trust relationship with the United States to the advantage of Beijing. And that's what was going on there. And, uh, you know, I mean, the thing that kind of drives me crazy is that it's in plain sight, you know, like it's out in the open. And um, that's the thing about corruption is the more of it there is, the more it becomes normalized and nobody sees anything untoward about it. You know, when 2015 is a really important year, 2015 was the biggest year in uh, in the United United Front Work Department, which is Beijing's overseas strong-arming and influence-peddling operation. Biggest year for the United Front Work Department since Tiananmen in 1989. 2015 was the year that the Trudeau government was elected, and you have to remember that Trudeau campaigned on this entire proposition of drawing us out of the American economic orbit and marrying Canada's advanced capitalist economy and natural resources with Chinese capital and Chinese consumer markets. Big year. Mm -hmm. So it was a banner year for the United Front Work Department in Canada. And in 2018, uh, the United Front Work Department uh, absorbed the Overseas Chinese Affairs Office of the Chinese state um, and uh, started preparing for uh, very, very quickly for, for the possibility of a federal election. And so, you know, what 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 is obvious and clear is that and, you know, the Chinese, uh, you know, communications and correspondences and conversations have been intercepted, showing that what they wanted to do was to make sure to do everything they possibly could do to to re to 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 get the Trudeau government reelected in 2019 and in 2021. And, um, you know, a couple of conservative candidates, there's no problem there. There's some writings in uh, the greater Toronto area, like Markham and Don Valley, where there's no difference. There's no there's no distinction. And, and by the way, I think it's really important for readers or listeners to understand, this isn't about the Chinese community right? in Canada. There's no such thing. There are several Chinese communities in Canada. The original Chinese community that built this damn country worked the railroads, worked in the mines, worked in the factories and the canneries, and they were from the five counties at the mouth of the Pearl River, spoke Taishanese, and then there was a great wave because of the terror about, you know, the handover in Hong Kong, and uh, those are Cantonese people. They were The Cantonese people were always here, uh, but they became dominant uh, in about, I'm going to say, the late 80s, I guess, and then only two years ago, Mandarin became the third language the you know the most important unofficial language, in the Greater Toronto area, and uh, Metro Vancouver and Montreal because of these you know wealth migration, uh, policies that allowed I, I'm counting about 500,000 uh, immigrants from mainland China and I don't want to disparage them all. But it's mainly, you know, the real estate industry. It's Mm -hmm. mainly the Mandarin bloc. And, you know, whatever decent and good Canadians are in that community, they're terrorized by the hierarchy. And the hierarchy is totally mobbed up. It's United Front Work Department. They make no bones about it. They, they, They go to banquets together. You see Senator Yen Pao Wu and the local, you know, the consular, the consul general, and, and, you know, these whale gamblers from, from, from China, you know, with, implicated in, in, in money laundering investigations in Vancouver,
3: mm-hmm.
1: they go to parties together every other weekend. I mean, it's, that, I think this is the thing that's so brazen, right? It's like it's a message. It's a message to the hundreds of thousands of Canadians of Chinese origin, many of whom have family back home that we're in the catbird seat here. We're, we're in control. And you better not, you better mind your tone.
2: Yeah.
1: And, and I think, you know, this is the thing that and I, I have to confess, and I do, I wear my heart on my sleeve on this thing. I'm a human rights guy. I'm a senior fellow with the Royal Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. And the thing that really has been, I think, atrocious is that for years and years and years in this country, We've had hundreds of thousands of decent, tax-paying Canadians, members of the Iranian diaspora, the the, the 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 Chinese diaspora, who have been terrorized by the Khomeinists, by by the regime in Beijing, and it's like oh oh well, to that I guess that's uh, you know just the cost of doing business with them.
0: Right. Which gets to the question of where we go from here. A public inquiry, I think, would be useful. A foreign influence registry, all of these things would be useful. But ultimately, this is going to mean, I think, you know, a much longer and broader shift in our, our political dealings with China, our China policy, and just you know, recognizing Beijing's intents. Like, that's the biggest shift we need. Ultimately, Terry, what's going to change all of this?
1: Well, I think a couple of things. I think at the, the macro scale... Uh, one thing that's been really interesting to watch is the way the Americans have frozen out Canada oh, yeah. in, yeah. Any, you know, I think, four or five different military and trade uh, initiatives in, uh, in Asia. Uh, for years, I mean, going back to the early years of the Obama administration, when the Harper government was, uh, was allowing all of these uh, Chinese state-owned enterprises to buy up key spigot points in the oil patch, Um, you know, the Obama administration and Huawei. The Obama administration was warning us about Huawei and Sinopec saying, look, no good can come of this. You do not want to do this. Believe me, it will not end well. Uh, And finally, I think, you know, we sort of flattered ourselves during the Trump period by saying, well, all of this China stuff, you know, it's just that Trump guy. Um, In fact, Trump didn't do anything useful on the China file that wasn't, he wasn't forced to do by a bipartisan consensus. Yeah. In Congress. Um, but Biden comes along and basically says, okay, kids, you know, you've had your fun. You know, it. it you, you it's over. The party's over. And, you know, you get all of the, the sort of buy America stuff. And, you know, Janet Yellen, the, the Treasury ste- Secretary, starts to use the term friend-shoring. The next thing you know, that's all you hear uh, uh, Christian Freeland talking about or Uh, Philippe Champagne talking about French shoring and, you know, my gosh. And so the Americans, I think, have really boxed our ears on this in the sort of broader geopolitical scenario. And the other thing I think... that that we have to realize is that there's nobody, there's no cavalry coming in to save us here. There is no federal inquiry. It's not gonna be the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. It's not gonna be the National Security Review Agency. It's not gonna be the House Process and Affairs Committee. Canadians are gonna have to wake up to this and they're going to have to make their own judgments Do we want agents of the Chinese Communist Party, members of the the China-Canada Friendship Association, uh, all of these uh, Mandarin bloc multi, 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 multi millionaires driving around in their Lamborghinis and Ferraris and terrorizing uh, members of the Chinese diaspora who screw up their courage and go to the free, you know, these free Hong Kong rallies, Canadians have to know this stuff. Canadians are going to have to educate themselves about this. They're going to have to listen very closely to what the diaspora communities have been saying. They're going to have to recognize that this is as thesis, And the, 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 the chief, chief of defense staff uh, has said that basically China is at war with the West. This is a hostile foreign power. And they have entrenched themselves in Canadian academic institutions, in Canadian political parties, in the the Canadian corporate sector. And there has to be a really, really fierce political reckoning Mm -hmm. for this. And we're going to have to be on our toes. It's you know this is the thing that makes me a little crazy about the conversation in Ottawa right now. It's like well you know we can have an NSI cop look at this. Well, the, those parliamentarians are bound by a lifetime gag order. They're mm-hmm. not allowed to talk about what they're being shown. Yeah. Um, and you know it's uh, we we it's ourselves, pal. It's yeah. the voters. It's the citizens of this country. We have to watch very, very closely what's been going on around us. And it's not just the Liberal Party. You know, there were tremendous in- inroads that uh, the, the Be- Beijing's influence peddlers made into the Conservative Party in the last election. Uh, you know, and the, and the election, and they got rid of O'Toole. Well done.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's in the NDP as well. There are several NDP MPs that are very, very close to uh, Chinese consulates across the country. And if you watch their voting records in the House of Commons, they never vote. They never, they never vote yay or nay if, it, uh, if, it's a, if it's a vote that the Chinese consulate doesn't want them to make. Uh, you know, it's deep, really deep, really dark. And, I mean, they've been throwing elections. The United Front Work Department. Has been working on election interference uh, according to a, a United Front Work Department training manual that was leaked in 2017. This goes back to 2003 and 2006. They were boasting about the number of candidates that they'd managed to get elected in the GTA. Wow. Um, and, and I, you know, it's uh, people got to wake up. You know, when. Uh, those two years, I think, you know, twenty fifteen, twenty eighteen, the the expansion of the United Front Work Department, uh, the, the, the 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 you know, high gear that uh, the UFWD went into in Canada, they had it made. I mean, they had their guy. This is their policy in Canada was Trudeau's policy in Canada. I'm sorry, I know it sounds partisan and all that kind of stuff, but. China's interests in Canada and its strategy, its goals, were the Trudeau government's interests in Canada and its strategies and goals. There's no way around that. I'm sorry. I know this really is upsetting for liberals to hear, and there's a lot of decent liberals out there, and I don't want to hurt their feelings. But that's just it. That is it. And it's been right in front of our noses. And year after year after year, we get these public reports from NSICOP, from CSIS, from the RCMP year after year after year. And now it's like, well, you know, I have to confess to you, Rob. Sometimes I think, my God, is it too late? I don't know.
0: Well, let's hope not. We'll see how this plays out in the coming weeks. Uh, Much more from you, of course, uh, at nationalpost.com, ottawascitizen.com, and uh, in more detail at your Substack newsletter, therealstory.substack.com. Terry Glavin, always a pleasure. Some great insight on this. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. We'll get some of your phone calls, a few other things to get to as well here. There's been a lot of focus in Ottawa on the issue of election interference and specifically attempts by China to meddle in to interfere in Canadian elections. One of the reasons all of that has come to light is through various reporting, including from uh, Global News reporter Sam Cooper. Which, in turn stems from, I think, what we could fairly describe as whistleblowers at thesis. In fact, one of those whistleblowers penned an anonymous op-ed late last week in the Globe and Mail, laying out the reasons for why he or she felt compelled to share information, information and the sharing of which uh, that that individual could find himself or herself in trouble for. It's information that these people have access to, but are not supposed to be releasing. Clearly, there is an interest for the public here in these issues, given that it's our electoral system that's potentially being interfered with. So while most are referring to these as whistleblowers at ceases, there was also an investigation underway into these leaks. Times, it seems maybe there's been more interest in trying to find the whistleblowers than to try to address some of the concerns that they are bringing to light. But how do we strike this balance here? Between protecting national security and protecting secrets, but also ensuring that whistleblowers are protected and that the public has access to relevant information about our democracy, our government attempts by foreign adversaries to interfere in all of that. It was an interesting uh, op-ed pen for uh, Global News over the weekend on the importance of protecting democracy, protecting whistleblowers and and warning the government not to go overboard here in its hunt for the leakers. Uh, Joining us for some further thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program the author of this piece, uh, Cameron Hutchinson, a law professor at the University of Alberta, focuses on areas of freedom of expression and the public interest. Professor Hutchinson, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Thank you very much. Nice to be here.
0: So where do you come down on this question as, as to whether these are, are leakers deserving of prosecution, whether these are whistleblowers acting in the public interest, or if we're, we're somewhere in between here?
2: Um, well, I, I tend to shade towards uh, seeing them as whistleblowers in the public interest. Um, you know, leaker is more of a, a negative term, I right. suppose. Um, having said that, you know, you you've outlined in the introduction a lot of um issues that you need to balance, a lot of things you need to balance um in order to, you know, um both protect whistleblowers but also um you know maintain in this case for example the integrity of, of the security uh national security apparatus. So it's not an easy not an easy issue to, to wrestle with, but I definitely I think in a case like this, you have to side with the whistleblower, given the nature of the information that apparently has been leaked and the way it's been reported. I don't and in trying to investigate to find out who these people are. I don't think anything damaging about how that information was obtained, for example, was, was released to the media or the media reported on. So I'm not sure what the preoccupation is with trying to find this person or these persons when... Really what they've done is uh, you know enormous public uh, public interest value,
0: yeah, and I mean you know ultimately it's up to our elected officials to decide how to approach matters of national security etc, et and, and the decision to do or not do something based on on a report or warnings does fall to those leaders, right so it's not is it to any degree taking away from from that element you know that the elected officials have the final word if you know we're looking at this information through the lens of of those who leaked it or or provided it?
2: well, I think um you know I think there are safeguards in place in terms of how this stuff you know gets disseminated by the the news media so I mean in the normal course, we don't necessarily want people. Or nor is it newsworthy for people to you know release internal information about what's going on in an organization um, often you know it's just not of particular interest um, sometimes when you have an example like this where it sounds like there's been a long-standing issue in government in action um, and it might not even raise rise to the level of like wrongdoing for which you might be able to use a whistleblower mechanism uh, to filter it through, and and so often what happens is it gets leaked to the press, and if the press thinks it's newsworthy enough, then they report on it. And when the reception is like reception is on this information that you know people are, are very concerned, and they're you know I think generally happy that this was released. I just think at that point it's not something to try and go out and investigate who it is and then fire them and then prosecute them.
0: Which I, I, I suppose technically they could do, right? I mean, if they did mm-hmm. identify the source of this information, those individuals or individual could be fired, could be prosecuted. But even if there's a legal justification for that, you, you don't think that's in the public interest?
2: I don't. I, I think, you know, there's some discretion there. I think they they may have to have the appearance of an investigation both internally for purposes of maybe firing the person, or uh, externally by RCMP to see you know who, who violated this act, but they don't necessarily have to follow through on that if they find out who it is. And so that's that's one way you could deal with it. But it's also true too, I think, that we need greater protections for news sources in Canada. We, we recently had a law passed that tried to to improve those protections. I don't think it goes far enough. And I and I th- really think that, you know, if you read that um anonymous op ed in the Globe on Friday, um the, the very uh I've I've read those stories before of whistleblowers who really told it with their conscience about the right thing to do and, and um I have no doubt that, you know, it's completely true what that person is saying. And I think when you think of when the public thinks about what they've done and what they're willing to sacrifice for giving this information to us, I just think we need to do a better job protecting them.
0: Right. And I mean, you know, there's even the theoretical possibility here that the journalists themselves who reported on these stories could face some kind of repercussion or prosecution. I mean, that would be quite a step to take here. What, what do you think the fallout or, or the implications of that would be?
2: Yeah, technically, it sounds. It seems like if you look at the Security of Information Act, that merely receiving what you know to be classified information is an offense. Uh, that, of course, doesn't look very good if the RCMP starts suing um, newspapers for reporting on a story like this. Nor, nor do I think if they went after the source to try and go to court to find out who this is. Um, by forcing a journalist to disclose who the whistleblower is. I, I don't think those are good looks. I think they're kind of heavy-handed. And I think they, you know, I, I think they, especially at this stage, that this looks like a way to deflect from the real issue. And, I mean, the first reaction of the prime minister is, you know, to deflect, deflect, deflect. And one of the deflections was to go after the leaker. And I just don't think... You know, I think we'd be better served if our politicians um, just answered the, the the issues to the public about what, you know, what what's going on instead of trying to shoot the messenger, so to speak. Oh Exactly.
0: And I mean, that that's the thing. Even if we want to get narrowly focused on the specifics of whatever might might have been done here, you know, this kind of firing or prosecution or both, that would really put a chill, wouldn't it, on, on other potential whistleblowers, not even necessarily in, in CSIS, but in other government agencies and organizations.
2: Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, the stakes are higher because of the and the Security of Information Act and the possibility of criminal prosecution. But, yes, it, you know, our courts have talked about that, uh, the chilling effect of sources coming forward. I mean, we, we in our laws, we recognize we've created an act actually to try to protect these sources. And our Supreme Court has said, you know, we need to protect these sources. They're invaluable for bringing matters of public interest to light yet it seems when the rubber hits the road we do a really poor job of doing that um and i just think we need to do that and i think part of it is the the easiest way to to do that is to use some discretion in cases like this and just say listen we're going to say we're going to look for these people we might find out who they are but we don't necessarily have to follow through with any consequences and that might be the maybe the best way to deal with this, a more pragmatic way to deal with it. Um, if they go to court, I, I don't like the chances. I, I think, uh, you know, if they try and find out who the, these whistleblowers are, I think our law as it stands right now, would uh, a court would order them to disclose who they are. And, and then, uh, you know, we'd have criminal prosecutions of these people. Well, we'll
0: see where it all goes from here. Your commentary is mentioned. It's uh, up at globalnews.ca. Professor Hutchison, thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate
2: it. Thank you very much for having me.
0: All the best. Uh, this is Cameron Hutchison, law professor, University of Alberta. The focus on issues around freedom of expression of the public interest, which we need to, to think of both of those principles here in deciding whether it's worth going after uh, these individuals at CSIS, who I think can fairly be described as whistleblowers. They brought to the public's attention something of great public interest. Right, something that committees are dealing with, a special rapporteur is going to deal with, that we may have a public inquiry to deal with. All of that attests to the fact that these are hugely important issues that maybe we wouldn't really know enough about to be having these conversations had it not been for those who put their careers at risk to warn the Canadian public. It does not seem to me to be in any capacity within the public interest. Uh, to now launch some kind of a witch hunt to figure out who these individuals were, to fire, to prosecute them, let alone to try to go after the journalist who, who reported on all of this. It's going to be a big week in the nation's capital, though, for another reason, as U.S. President Joe Biden this week will make his first official state visit to Canada. Now, it's taken a while for some, I guess, obvious reasons. Uh, For the president to to get here to Canada, mind you, as we've started to come out of the pandemic, uh, the president has made other visits abroad. But this month, uh, Thursday and Friday will be his first official visit to Canada. There's plenty for the two leaders to discuss here. Joining us for more on what issues are overshadowing this visit, what potential sources of friction there, there might be here between these two ostensible allies, very pleased to welcome to the program. here This afternoon, Dr. Christopher Sands, director of the Canada Institute of the Woodrow Wilson International Centre for Scholars. Uh, Christopher Sands, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
4: Um, thank you very much. Nice to be back.
0: So. COVID's one reason, big part of the reason why it's taken this long. But are there any other reasons here? Why has it taken up until this point for Joe Biden to, to visit Canada?
4: Well, I think there uh, there are two factors here. One is a very complicated international schedule. Uh, the president and the prime minister run into each other at NATO summits, G7, G20. The list goes on. And so there's a sense that the Canada-U.S. relationship is always being worked on, uh, certainly at the at the level of officials and their conversations all the time. People forget there are not that many capitals in the same time zone as Washington, and so it's really easy for the two leaders to communicate. Mm-hmm. But the, the in-person visit is really important, and the reason it's important is the symbolism. It, it suggests... Uh, or actually symbolizes it, it embodies the American commitment and uh, and real recognition of Canada as as an ally and I know some Canadians feel ignored or or maybe misunderstood it 's really important to do that symbolically. The second reason that this has taken so long is the polarization of American politics, which means that everything from passing the budget to figuring out an approach to the green transition and getting it through Congress. Uh, really preoccupies a leader's time. Uh, there's a little bit of that in Ottawa because of the minority government, right. but it's certainly an issue for President Biden, who needs to work the phones to get his legislative priorities going, and also needs needs to watch already for the 2024 election, his rivals beginning to to move forward in the Republican contest, and also uh, taking note of some of the political movements that might change the balance of Congress even when he were to face a second term. So the domestic preoccupation, a busy international schedule and the sense maybe that's a third thing, but the Canada US relation is ticking US relationship is ticking along pretty well, so focus on the crisis, not necessarily on the uh, very nice neighbor that you have.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I do wonder, and I think a lot of Canadians noticed it last week, as you had uh, President Biden standing shoulder to shoulder with the leaders of uh, Australia and the United Kingdom and this AUKUS security partnership. There was a notable absence there, I think, as as far as a lot of Canadians saw. As here at at home, we focused on some of these issues around China and Canada's policy toward the Chinese government, you know, the question of whether we've been out, out of step at all with, with the U.S. on this? Is that reflected in, in some of these security policy decisions the U.S. is pursuing? Is is there any kind of rift there?
4: I, I don't think there's a rift. I think what we're seeing is the consequence of the, the regional sort of stovepipes at the State Department and the Defense Department. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could always count on Canada being on people's minds in the NATO transatlantic space, uh, there was lots to point to. You were a NATO member, etc. And in that post-World War II era, you had made such big commitments to, to Europe, uh, and you were such a good partner that the U.S. was always thinking about Canada. I think the phrase that Dean Acheson uh, used in his memoirs was was that you were present at the creation of this sort of world order that emerged. But I always think a little bit back to John Holmes, the famous Canadian diplomat who... Lived through the same period and observed that if you looked at it now, it looked like it was a genius uh, plan that the U.S. rolled out with the Bretton Woods, the IMF, the World Bank, the United Nations, NATO. But at the time, it looked a lot more like trial and error and just trying to figure out where you could get traction. And in the world now, the U.S. is experimenting. Will the Quad be the important? Asia Pacific actor for defense, will AUKUS take that role? There's even an organization I was, I was a little startled to see them talking about the I2U2, which was uh, Israel, India, United States, and the United Arab Emirates. That's a kind of an interesting uh, collection, but the U.S. is out there doing that. And unlike after World War II, the world's bigger, is more complex. And and you know Canada has been playing catch up. Um, it, it is not a major defense spender. Its development assistance is is a little bit less than than one would hope. And your diplomatic corps works really really hard, but they've been seen in a much more regional context. And I I think Canada should be very much present in our discussions of the Indo Pacific. Canada's got a strategy now indicating where it might want to be helpful, uh, but I think the U.S. has been neglectful in not sort of thinking creatively about how Canada can add some value and, and giving Canada some clear signals that it's welcome, but not for a free ride. It, you have a seat at the table, but you can also help. And, and mm-hmm. thinking through where Canada can be helpful, that, that's something that the U.S. hasn't done enough of, and I think it makes it harder for Canada to figure out whether they belong and often gives Canadians the feeling that, that we're leaving you out on purpose or, as you were saying, that there may be some sort of rift there when I really think it's just that we've, we've just not done our homework and we've been a bit neglectful on that.
0: When it comes to more domestic issues and more economic issues, I mean, we, we went through a period where we were renegotiating NAFTA. There, there was a lot of tension on, on those kinds of trade and economic issues. It doesn't seem like there's any of that there at the moment. I mean, both administrations are dealing with similar problems in terms of, you know, the economy, inflation, et cetera. But that doesn't seem like it's going to be uh, much of a topic of consideration. Are those issues pretty quiet for now?
4: They are pretty quiet. There are a couple of things. And I think, you know, certainly you go to Ontario and, and there are the discussions about uh, electric vehicle battery subsidies, and Canada was proactive in a way that the Europeans were not, and so when the consumer subsidies were rolled out, uh, Canada was included as, you know, stuff made in Canada would count, and consumers could buy vehicles partly made in Canada, but then when the U.S. put billions of dollars in subsidies out there for electric vehicle battery manufacture, that put a lot of pressure on Canada. And and really other countries and I think a lot of our European and Asian allies, I I think about South Korea and the Netherlands and to some extent Germany, saw their best companies opening up new facilities in the US to take advantage of those of those grants. And uh you know, it's one thing we need more capacity, it's one thing if we add capacity, it's another thing if all we're doing is moving the capacity around and the US gets all the benefit. And I think Canada's like most of our allies. If the U.S. opens up its wallet, there's just so much money, uh, there's no hope of winning a subsidy war. And I, I give the Canadians credit. You managed to get a Volkswagen electric battery plant, and that was a real coup, but, uh, but it costs a lot. And it's going to cost a lot the next time it comes up. So trying to avoid a subsidy war is, is pretty important here. And I think the U.S. has been a little too focused on America first. Um, Canada's tried to appeal on this, but there's a lot of work to do. I think it's not a it's not a huge fight like the fight we had over the Keystone pipeline, Keystone XL, um, but it is an area where I think there is some tension, and if we don't resolve it, it, it could end up becoming a bigger problem.
0: There's also some border issues here, which is interesting. I mean, the U.S. has its own issues on its southern border. Uh, Canada would would like to see the safe third country renegotiated so we can deal with some some problem spots along our borders. I don't see that there's really any incentive for the U.S. to want to reopen all of that. So what about that as a, a potential source of, I don't know if tension is the word, but disagreement anyway?
4: Oh, it's a real hornet's nest, and for a couple of reasons. One is the Supreme Court decision in Canada. The Canadian Supreme Court, uh, as a result of a lawsuit that was brought by uh, some human rights activists, um, challenged Canada's designation of the United States as a safe third country toward the end of the Trump administration. And when that agreement was signed uh, between the two countries, we we recognize each other as safe third countries, um, it, it was in the 70s. But with Donald Trump as president, I think the activists were saying, well, you know, how can you call that safe under Trump? And the Supreme Court of Canada looked at that and kind of put the rhetoric to one side and said, well, The problem is there was never any process. Like, Canada had no way of determining that the U.S. was a safe third country or not. And so it asked for a process, and Canada has been sort of looking at what it could do, what would be a reasonable process that would satisfy the court. And I think for the Trudeau government, in their heart of hearts, Biden replacing Trump as president was good enough. That should just put the issue aside. But that's not how the Supreme Court sees it. They still think a process is necessary. So that's been one challenge um, because... For someone on the U.S. side, that whole debate about whether the U.S. is safe or not is is a little bit insulting and makes it a little hard to have that conversation. The other thing that is challenging is that uh, during the Trump administration, we had people fleeing the United States uh, trying to get into Canada. Now the flow is much more two-way, and the UN uh, High Commission on Human on Refugees has said they they estimate there are 117 million displaced and stateless people around the world in 2023 which is historic and that's Ukrainians, Syrians, Venezuelans and and others it's a lot of people Canada and the US although we're not always perfect are two of the most welcoming societies for for immigrants but particularly for refugees but it's a lot for both of us to handle it we're seeing the friction as as people you know say well I'm, I'm in Canada I'm going to race into the US or I'm in the US I'm going to race into Canada And it's happening at not at the normal border crossings, which we anticipated, but at the space in between. So I think there are a lot of people who are pro-immigrant but really don't like the idea of the border being out of control. Uh, That kind of gets them, and I think it's true in the U.S. as well as in Canada. Now, we focus on the southern border, but what we've seen in the last couple of weeks are Republicans in Congress arguing that uh, Biden President Biden broke the southern border after Trump stitched it up I guess well uh, and now they're saying Biden's broken the northern border and uh, I think that that's important because uh, it makes this a very difficult issue for a president who's says he's going to run for re-election, we think. Um, Partisan politics are highly polarized, and uh, this is like a a little bit of fuel on the fire, and it's it's going to make it trickier. If we were, you know, in a different, happier time, the president could solve this more easily, but right now, knowing that he's getting hammered over this by Republicans is going to make it more difficult for both sides to come up with a result. I'm not saying that opposition or criticism by the opposition isn't valid. I just I think that it's made an easy solution to this problem a little more difficult.
0: Yeah, I suspect you're right. We'll see what uh, happens this week. Uh, The visit is uh, Thursday and Friday. We'll include an address to Parliament, so it should be uh, quite the show in Ottawa this week. Christopher Sands, appreciate your perspective and insight on all this. Thanks for joining us here.
4: It, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ron.
0: Likewise. All the best. Uh, Dr. Christopher Sands, director of the Canada Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. So uh, some thoughts on the state of the Canada-U.S. relationship. Yes, it's the first official state visit by a U.S. president since 2016. So a seven-year gap there for a couple of obvious reasons, I guess. All right, welcome back. Uh, Let's shift from the uh, poop show in Ottawa to the uh, poop show in city parks. Uh, Literally, you know, as the snow melts, there's going to be lots that's uh, left behind. Uh, You know, people use parks for all kinds of different things and activities. But certainly for dog owners, parks are a place to to get out, go walk your dog. And in some cases, even, you know, take your dog off the leash, let your dog run around. Uh, Dogs are dogs and dogs do their thing. It's up to us as dog owners to clean up that thing. Unfortunately, many don't. Too many don't, it would appear. There's a new study published in Nature Scientific Reports on fecal contamination in urban parks and what's known as the tragedy of the commons, a term that was coined just over 50 years ago, but a concept that goes back even further. Basically, the idea is, with individuals having access to a public resource. And we have a shared interest in that res- in resource, but people act in their own interest and, in doing so, ultimately deplete the resource. That too many dog owners acting selfishly are affecting everybody's enjoyment of these parks. And so this study attempts to quantify just how big a problem this is. Now, it's not uniquely a Calgary problem. Uh, But this study was focused on parks in Calgary. And my goodness, that's a lot of dog poo in Calgary parks. Despite the requirement, the obligation that pet owners clean it up. Joining us to talk more about uh, this research, why this is uh, such a concern. We're pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, the lead author on this study, Professor Alessandro Masolo is with the Department of Biology at the University of Pisa in Italy, also with the Department of Ecosystem and Public Health, the Faculty of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Calgary. Professor Masola, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks a lot. Uh, let's talk a bit about what this study found then. How do you go about measuring the extent of a problem like this, first of all?
3: Well, uh, the, the, the approach was pretty simple, if you want Uh, we just uh, decided to sample randomly a certain number of city parks and uh, What we did was we used some geographical information system to select random points Hundreds of random points in the city and then uh, we went on the field We put a pin in the random point and then we looked at the amount of fecal matter in a radius uh, of 10 meters around that point and then we repeated the measure uh, after one week and then the year after. So and in this way, you can assess the amount of fecal matter that has been defecated and left uh, on, the, on the ground uh, in, uh, in a week. At the end of the day, is pretty simple. And of course, we assess the amount of fecal matter by dogs, uh, by coyotes, and by other animals. But the study uh, published on scientific reports um, it was um, was focusing mostly on uh, dog fecal matter.
0: Right. And this looked also at areas that would be off-leash and used more by dog owners and also looked more at more general parks areas that would be used by everybody. Is that right?
3: Yes, that's correct. Some of the, the areas um, underwent different dog management policies. So uh, we simply tried to assess whether the policies in place would... Uh, had affected the amount of fecal matter that uh, we found in the park and unfortunately that was the case. Uh, You have to keep in mind that not all the offish parks are fenced. Uh, Many in Calgary are uh, you know not fenced and, uh, and in some cases some parks have mixed policies in place so some areas are off-leash, some areas are on-leash, and some other areas are no-dog areas. So, and, uh, and that was one of the, the elements that was uh, uh, mostly uh, predicting the amount of fecal matter uh, in, the, in the ground. Along with the, the distance from parking lots, that mm-hmm. was another good uh, predictor of, uh, of the amount of fecal mass that we could find in, in the field. So the closer to the parking lots, and the higher the probability to finding uh, dog fecal, dog feces.
0: Well, there was a lot to be found. And, and this speaks uh, sort of to the concept of tragedy of the commons. Despite the, the expectation, the obligation uh, of dog owners to clean up after their pets, many are not. right. And this, this is a substantial amount of fecal matter that, that's left behind each and every week.
3: Yes, uh, if you if you extrapolate the, the numbers that we found in our plots to the the different parks and to the whole city, uh, then uh, yes, the, the total amount uh, is uh, pretty impressive. We are talking about tons of uh, fecal material left over uh, in the field by dog owners, and that is unfortunate because, uh, as a matter of fact, the, the dog management policy in the city of calgary is among the most uh, modern and advanced in the world so it's not a matter of uh, developing new policies or uh, enforcing them it's just a matter of education and respect by dog owners and by the way i want to to state the fact that i am a very happy dog owner, and I love yes. to walk my dog off leash. So, yes. I am. I belong to the the the, the, the category. So I'm, I'm. And and that's the point of uh, of the conflict that arises when uh, when these things happen. So the, the, from from a social standpoint, uh, when uh, we do not pick up after our dogs. Uh, all the people that are using the same uh, the same common, so mm-hmm. the same uh, resource uh, that in this specific case is the, is the park, then uh, they would suffer from from, uh, from the presence of fetal matter on the ground. And this, I think, is not only a problem for non-dog owners, but also for those dog owners that actually pick up after their dogs because we would like to see the others do the same. Well, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and the point is that maybe, maybe, one thing that we could, uh, one idea and one, uh, one very simple principle we could use to facilitate that is that, please remember that in between the five ten minutes, or 15, let's say, since you enter into the park, the dog will defecate. Mm-hmm. And likely it will be just uh, in a few hundred meters from uh, from the parking lot where you park your car, so just pay attention to that in that moment, and once it happens, then you can relax your level of attention. Even though, even though, of course, you shouldn't. Even if uh, you are picked up after your dog, you should always have control on your dog. Even right. in areas. Yeah. Well, let's
0: talk about the concerns here. Maybe some dog owners just think that it's, it's poop, it's natural uh, rabbit's poop and coyote's poop and, and deer uh, poop. So what's, what's the big deal if it's my dog? But there are all kinds of you know, potential health risks and consequences to dogs, to people uh, from, from this kind of a problem. What, what are those, those risks?
3: Okay, first of all, uh, one problem is the amount so when you, when you think about the, the overall, let's, uh, let's talk about coyotes that are, you know, the equivalent of dogs, but sure. in the wild form, if you want. Um, so the, the, the point is that we have um, about 1,000 coyotes estimated, or a little bit more, a little bit less, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. But we are talking about those numbers in the city of Calgary. But we have more than uh, 130,000 registered dogs. In the city of Calgary, mm-hmm. just in the city of Calgary. So if you think about the amount of fecal matter that is produced by dogs compared to coyotes, is uh, uh, is, uh, is way more, first of all. Second is the problem related to pathogens that are excreted normally, uh, or potential pathogens that are excreted with the feces. We can talk about excreted, uh, E. coli, we can talk about general bacteria, uh, and gastrointestinal parasites that are excreted with the feces. So when, when, when you have such numbers, even if the dogs are uh, regularly taken care of, the likelihood of shedding uh, pathogens and parasites is way higher. And so at the end of the day, by not picking up after your dog, you increase the risk of accumulation of these pathogens in the, in the environment. And for example, with the water uh, after snow melting or after uh, rain, these uh, pathogens may accumulate in ponds where other dogs drink, for example, or in areas where children are playing. So we don't want that, of course. And uh, in, uh, some of these pathogens may or may not be zoonotic, meaning that may be transmitted to people as well. One of them is the one that we have been studying since, um, I would say, 15 years. Um, that is the Canococcus multilocularis that is a very important gastrointestinal parasite that usually lives in the intestinal tract of uh, wild and domestic canids, so coyotes, foxes, and dogs. And uh, these uh, worms, when they, are, when they reach maturity, they release the, the eggs in the intestinal tract of the of the definitive host that is the uh, coyote, let's say, and uh, these eggs are def- uh, released in the field uh, with the feces, and they contaminate the environment. And uh, think about a dog that is uh, that is shedding eggs; it may contaminate your backyard and even um, even your couch or your bed, yes. depending on your habits. So, and if you think. Uh, for example we have estimated that r- roughly 1% of our dogs in the city of Calgary are uh, at some stay, at some time of the year they are positive they they carry this kind of pathogen it looks like a, a small prevalence 1% if compared to the coyotes that are, it's very common in coyotes let's say 50% of coyotes they carry that pathogen But 50% of 1000 is
0: 500
3: right no. <laughs> and uh, uh, 1% or 130,000, well, you know, you do the math and yeah. you see that the numbers are impressive.
0: Indeed, so. yeah. Some important points. As mentioned, uh, this study is published. It's uh, Nature Scientific Reports, nature.com. Professor Masolo, thank you so much for the overview and the uh, insight. Appreciate your time
3: here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Have mm-hmm. a good day. You as well. There you go. That's
0: uh, Alessandro Masolo uh, with the Department of Biology at the University of Pisa in Italy, also with the uh, Faculty of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Calgary. So the lead author on this study, which concludes that, yes, there's a lot of dog poop in city parks. It's too much, and it's uh, a problem. Again, I mean, if people were picking up after the pets like they're supposed to be, this wouldn't be a problem. And now I'm a dog owner, too. And I mean, I, I make a point of, like, if I'm taking my dog for a walk, I've got the poop bag and the backup poop bag. And if somehow, you know, it's happened a couple of times where I forgot one or I didn't have a backup, then I'll go home and get it and I'll go pick it up. Like, I, I just don't want to be that dog owner. I remember getting into it with somebody and we were out of town visiting family. We had the dog uh, with us so as I'm taking her for a walk and we we're walking uh, in a neighborhood and, and she stopped to pee and right? she wasn't pooping but somebody from their window thought that she was and they yelled and they said hey pick up your dog bleep and i said she's not it was weird anyway i just walked on i came back the same way and the person came out it's you know i'm I'm sorry i I just yeah i thought anyway and i i mean i kind of get it at some level it's frustrating it's annoying you see someone walking their dog and the dog's clearly pooping and the owner's not doing anything it's like, like why just pick it up Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.